Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, a film and TV critic. And I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a proctor. What's a proctor? I have the faintest of ideas. Ha ha ha. The way this podcast works when we're not quoting lines from the personal history of David Copperfield is that Ned and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. We've given it away that this is part four of our Dev Patel miniseries on Armando Iannucci's The Personal History of David Copperfield. And if we sound a little rusty, that's because behind the scenes, even though our, our episodes have been coming out weekly, Ned and I kind of banked some up at the end of June, early July so that Ned could take some much-deserved vacation time. So, Ned, how was your wonderful vacation experience? Oh, uh, it was a blast. I got to, I went to three different places. I rode on boats, I climbed mountains, I went to a wedding of a very dear old friend. The only downside is I, I had a little mountain biking accident, and I think I cracked a rib, so... So Ned is braving so much pain to bring us this sweet, sweet podcast record today. I'm certainly popping so many ibuprofen to make it happen, um, but it's my pleasure. So, you know, I mean, what's a vacation if you don't come back with, uh, you know, something in the vein of like a, a sunburn or a cracked rib or what have you? Well, I so, was going to say, while you were that. off having your fun Tom Cruise style adventures, I was being a classic <laughs> indoor kid and only marathoning movies and TV shows and staying in the air conditioning. My biggest like achievement was that I did purchase a new mic. So if my if my sound sounds better, that's why. And if my sound sounds worse, that's also why. <laughs> but we're in, we're investing in roll calling over here. Do you see any good movies? Well, I was going to say perfect transition because oh. as this podcast drops, dear listeners, on July 30th. It's a big day for a roll calling because July 30th, not only do you get Green Knight starring Dev Patel, which we will be covering next week after we get a chance to see it, Can't you wait. also get Jungle Cruise starring Miss Emily Blunt, who we just previously covered. And Ned, one of the films that I watched in that time when you were away was Jungle cruise oh you've seen it i've seen the, i've been on the cruise my friend so oh I thought maybe i could since this podcast will be dropping once it's out i thought i could do a brief little side but since we won't be covering jungle cruise officially i thought i could give us a little check-in on emily blunt i'd i'd love to hear your jungle cruise take i don't think it's a great movie arguably maybe not even fully a good movie but <laughs> so much better than i thought it was going to be and oh, that cool. in and of itself was like a huge relief for me because right. we had talked previously that we thought it maybe seemed like it could be a questionable direction for Emily Blunt's career. I thought it was going to be pretty dang bad, I have to say. It definitely is going for that like Pirates of the Caribbean, mummy style, mm -hmm. you know, action adventure with fantasy elements. Yeah. For me, the biggest drawback was that I, I really enjoy The Rock. I really enjoy Emily Blunt. I understand the argument for both of them being in this style of movie. Mm -hmm. I find them to be an incredibly odd pairing. And mm -hmm. I, the movie could never quite sell me on them as like budding potential couple. My brain yeah. was just like, no, this doesn't quite make sense to me. The Rock has a lot of charisma, but he's not. I can't think of a time when he has a ton of chemistry. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Hobbs and Shaw has mm -hmm. a, an extremely shoehorned in to the extent that in the final act, him and Vanessa Kirby have this little kiss moment where I'm like, oh, we're really doing this? I have not seen, I have not felt a, a single spark between these yes. two this entire time. 
Jungle Cruise might suffer from a bit of that problem, mm. too. I'm also keeping my eye on The Rock as he gets older, his love interest continuing to get younger. Yep. yep. You know, maybe he hasn't crossed over egregiously yet. What is but Vanessa we're keeping Kirby? an eye on that. 22 years old or something? 20, no, she's like 30 something. Is she? I think. She got a young face. I think she's got a, just got a young face. Um, but yeah, I think Emily Blunt is a lot of fun in Jungle Cruise. Like a fun, I could totally see, like, Bring the family, have a good time, watch her play a little spunky 1916, you know, explorer lady. It was Mm -hmm. not, it did not feel like it was a disastrous turn for her career. So in that sense, I'm giving it my stamp of roll calling approval. Cool. Well, maybe I'll check it out. It's out now. Yeah, it's out now. Go check it out if you'd like to, or go check out The Green Knight, which as I mentioned, we're covering next week. This week we are covering... The Personal History of David Copperfield, which, Ned, I'm very excited and, like, slightly nervous to talk to you about. So I saw this movie last year when it came out. I feel like it was a little bit uh, underseen and under-discussed. Like, Mm -hmm. it, uh, you know, as with a lot of things that came out during the pandemic, it was easy to be overshadowed in the crazy nature of the world. I think it had a good reception. Like, it's, you know, Rotten Tomatoes score is is fairly high. I think most people enjoyed it. But it wasn't the sort of film that showed up on a lot of, like, best of the year lists. It wasn't really in the Oscar conversation, although it did show up on my personal best of the year list. So I'm a fan. But Ned, we haven't spoken about this yet. Give me your, like, general take on the personal history of David Copperfield. I thought it was an absolute treat. From start to finish. Truly. I was so scared that you weren't going to like it. Well, sometime in our future, we're going to really butt heads about something. I mean, Uh, it will happen eventually. But no, I I loved it. I thought it was so, so jam-packed full of just wonderful little touches and flourishes and bits. So many good bits. So many bits. That just happen while you're moving from one other bit to another that we just stick some tiny little personal touch or not exactly laugh out loud moments. Like I didn't have that many. I had a few for sure. Me too. Uh, when she says, uh, God, what does she say? Oh no, I like Dora. It reminds me of doors and doors are such jolly useful things. Mine is everything with the donkeys. The like Tilda Swinton <laughs> chasing away donkeys that like killed me both times I, I saw this movie. There is a moment also when, um, we're first meeting Mr. Dick, Hugh Laurie's character, and he's talking about Tilda Swinton's Mrs. Trotwood, and he says, she's a remarkable one, very kind. And Dev Patel, with his, like, mouth full of tea cakes, kind of gives him this, like, is this a joke? You're serious? Oh, okay, that's fine, face. That I just had to, you know, skip back and watch again. There's just, there's just loads and loads of this thing. So I watched it this morning. I honestly wish that I'd had it in my schedule today to just watch it again. I don't have that very often, but I just wanted to pop it back on and start over from the beginning. It's so, it's just so full of little moments that I know are going to unfold to me on subsequent viewings, which I might do just for fun now after recording the podcast, which is not very strictly efficient of me. But um, yeah, I just want to see it again. And and it also, through all of that, it is, I don't know, it sort of conveys you gently along, like riding on a boat, which it's is a strange, watchable. a strange metaphor for me to use, considering it's maybe its least gentle moment involves drowning on a boat. But but generally speaking, yeah, it uh, it conveys you pleasantly. I'm so glad to hear you say all this because watch, rewatching it today, 
I was like, I feel like this is such a Ned and Caroline movie. Like one of those things, one of those Completely. like intersections that we could bond on. And mm-hmm. then I got so scared that you were going to hate it. And I would have to reevaluate everything I thought I knew about you. And like, I don't know, I would, it would have really would have just could have driven our entire friendship apart, I would say. No, not today, friend. Not today. You don't have to reevaluate Something everything. else that really struck me. So within this this is this is an adaptation of david copperfield one of uh, charles dickens's most famous novels mm-hmm. and i feel like one thing that they do in sort of adapting this that i think is like very sneakily smart like they're they're making it a story about a writer mm-hmm. about david copperfield discovering that he wants to be a writer but part of the way they translate that is having dev patel's take on david copperfield almost feel like an actor like he does this thing where he'll meet characters and sort of mimic them And then that is sort of like Mm -hmm. representative of him taking on their voices to eventually become a writer. But it's a very actorly way to convey that. And I think this is something you do all the time. I think you're a very good mimic and you will frequently like, not so much of real life people, but like you kind of just did like of a character in a movie, you'll frequently like do a very good impression of them. And so watching Dev do that, I was like, oh, I feel like this is a very Ned trait to... Is it too early for Sherry? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's my impression of Dev doing an impression of Benedict of Wong. Of Benedict Wong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I really like that sort of runner where, yeah, I, mean, I think we actually discussed this sometime in one of our Christian Bale episodes about the habit I had as a child of sort of instinctively mimicking people I met. And I like that they put that in here and even figure it as a sort of, I don't know, they kind of explore it as like a, uh, you know, an aspect of him being like not strictly neurotypical as a kind of intrusive thought, which allows him to connect with Hugh Laurie's Mr. Dick, who has deeply intrusive thoughts that are never quite figured out where, uh, or rather they, they are um, treated via kite time, but mm-hmm. he has, uh, he has some sort of fixation with Charles the first. Well, that was the other thing that made me laugh was that this is a movie that features prominently features Ben Wishaw and kites, which we have previously mm-hmm. seen in the Emily Blunt cinematic universe of yeah. Mary Poppins Returns, Ben Wishaw and kites. Yes. Uh, and yet a completely odious Ben Wishaw. Yeah, this is a villainous Ben Wishaw. Yeah. And in a way that kind of, I think, really effectively creeps up on you. You just want to, I mean, it's a great the way that this sort of whole sort of ensemble works is really nice. It does feel novelly. It does feel specifically Dickensian, the way that he creates this sort of massive cast of characters, and you don't know exactly how they're all going to piece together. I've never read this book before. Have you? I don't know, but I was just about to ask you if you have and your general thoughts on Dickens. I have not read David Copperfield. My instinct is always to say I'm a huge Dickens fan, although when I was thinking about it, I think I've only ever read... Great Expectations, Tale of Two Cities, and Hard Times, I think it's called, which is like a short novel that I swear to God, there were like two years of college where every history and English class I took assigned that novel. I think because it's just like a short Dickens that they could fit in there somewhere. So in my heart, I feel like I'm a big Dickens fan, but I might be a little bit of a fake fangirl in terms of not having that much depth of knowledge of his body of work. What about you? Well, you could just say you're enthusiastic about those. I I, I think I, I would say I really like Dickens, but I've read one less than that i think i've only read great expectations and oliver twist Ooh, but they're great but he's oliver so twist. funny yeah oliver twist is great oh it's one very, time i uh, tried to start social. reading i tried to start reading a christmas carol and i realized it was literally the all of the dialogue from a muppet's christmas carol like i did not realize how much dialogue from that movie was from the novel and i was like well i already know this from the muppets so i don't need to read this book 
I think I wonder how much of the dialogue in this film was pulled directly from Dickens. It feels like a lot, and it feels like that is something like that he lends himself to that in a way that other authors sort of require a more liberal hand in adaptation. Like mm-hmm. you can just pull he just writes really great dialogue that sounds really wonderful and mm-hmm. definitely is of a style, but I think still totally legible to a modern audience. So I was reading a little bit about sort of the production of this movie. So it's co-written and directed by Armando Iannucci, who is the guy behind the TV shows The Thick of It and Veep, and then In the Loop, which is a sort of film spinoff of The Thick of It and The Death of Stalin, all of which these are like sort of dark, cynical, very, very funny satires of politics, right? So Mm -hmm. that's sort of the vein he's been operating in. And so it's a little bit of a surprise that then he comes out with this sort of like whimsical, lighthearted, like optimistic, hopeful Dickens film. Yeah. A lot of the interviews about it were people being like, this is like weirdly upbeat for you. And let me see if I can find the quote. He had said that he, it was sort of on purpose that he sort of wanted to do something that was different and lighter. And he said, I specifically wanted to make something that celebrated the sense of community in Britain because during the last three years and with Brexit and all that, it's easy to think of Britain as being a divided insular isolationist nation and actually we're a very funny generous outgoing majority of people in one of the most diverse generous and kind-hearted of countries Hmm. so he has this like very specific take that he wants to present and then he is also sort of a lifelong dickens fan i think he had worked on some sort of documentary about dickens for an anniversary that had inspired him to revisit um david copperfield all of this is a long-winded way of saying that he said when they were first setting out to write the script they tried to do a draft that was only Dickens dialogue just as like an experiment to see if it could be done and they're like it was interesting it was not at all a narrative film that we could use but it was like an interesting starting point and it gave them a lot of permission then to add and change things and be like you know let's even though this is a pretty sprawling movie it's also a very like fleet movie it's only two hours long and they said that they were very purposeful in trying to you know combine characters or give interesting lines that maybe a different character had said but they end up cutting that character give that to one of the characters that exists within the movie so that's yeah. sort of an answer to your question of how much of it is dickens dialogue a lot of it is it's a lot of it is invented for the movie too well i think the script is great i think it really i think i do think it is impressive the way it ties it all together it does feel very coherent despite being you know in the way that novels are as you said rather sprawling and probably i mean i know that uh several dickens books were published serially is this one of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think that okay. this was, I think that this comes in like the middle of Dickens's career, like mm-hmm. almost sort of a turning point in him doing you know, more sort of adult, serious, mature work. Dickens has said that uh, David Copperfield is his most autobiographical novel and also the, his favorite of his novels he wrote. Mm-hmm. And it was published serially, like you said, as he liked to do. And I think that actually, it, this was reminding me of, I guess not the the 90s Little Women as much, but the Greta Gerwig Little Women. Totally. In that it is both trying to just do a straight adaptation of the story, but also kind of doing this meta layer of weaving in some of the author's real life and almost commenting on a work that is semi-autobiographical within just adapting the story. Like this opens, Personal History of David Copperfield opens with Dev as David Copperfield on stage doing sort of a reading as Charles Dickens used to do, traveling around the country and reading from his novels. And then that very theatrically takes us into the story of 
David Copperfield's life where Dev Patel is wandering around and like witnessing his own birth. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's all these like interesting meta touches. This yeah. does not feel like your standard buttoned up like period piece drama. No, no, it it, it is sort of, it goes beyond sort of a strictly realistic take at certain times. I mean, it's always heightened in the way that Dickens characters and stories are, but you also have these very interesting moments with film being sort of projected, even mm-hmm. though that would be anachronistic. It just sort of feels appropriate. There's a lot of interesting cinematography techniques. There's one sequence that sort of functions like a silent film, which yeah. is really fun when they're drunk really fun. and go to the theater. Yeah, they, it, it, it's it's... This word whimsical might come up a lot today, but it's very whimsical in the way it tells its story. And it does feel like it kind of pulls from a grab bag, from a bag of tricks in the same way that a piece of theater might. Yes, it's very theatrical. And I do like, I feel like the movie lampshades it with that one moment where David's like college or whatever high school friend is like, tell me a story. And and he starts telling a story and the guy's just like, I don't like whimsy. (laughs) And so he's like, tell me a scary story. I feel like that's a little bit of a winking like, yeah, we know this is a pretty like twee adaptation. I do think not that too in twee the, for me though, and not no, too twee not for, for me you. at all. I do think in the reaction when people had, I don't think anybody was like super against this movie, but I think a lot of like the critical reaction was like, oh, that was really cute and sweet, but also sort of like light, and there wasn't a ton to it. And so I think that was where it maybe wasn't a big as big a part of those like end of the year discussions. This is after Death of Stalin. Yeah, a couple of years after I think this was just this movie just came out last year. Oh wow. David Copperfield. We are cutting. Oh edge right, of, Dev, of course, of course, because you said right it here. was because you said it was uh, in the pandemic. It was affected by the pandemic. Did I you mean, see look, time has stopped to be sure. like five years have passed. No, I've actually never seen Death of Stalin, and I've never seen Veep, and I've never seen In the Loop. So I am uh, really in a in blind spot territory here with the Anucci. Yeah, Death of Stalin is the only Anucci film that I have seen. It's really good, I think, and was very talked about. In a way that this one wasn't, to put aside, you know, the effect the pandemic might have, I can also see a certain extent to which that one was, frankly, like, a little bit grittier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's both it's both more farcical, like openly farcical and grittier in that, as we've talked about before, it can maybe draw more critical acclaim or perhaps like film bro acclaim because it's got lots of death in it. It's got lots of like, mm-hmm. you know... KGB guys shooting NKV guys in the head and all that stuff. Um, and it makes a really, I think it makes a really sharp point about both the absurdity and ultimate savage brutality of that regime. And is ultimately like, because of that, a really cool, really interesting movie. But I can see how David Copperfield is not going to have the kind of cultural cachet among cool film people. Ned, are you trying to say that our culture might value gritty masculine violence more than earnest, optimistic, romantic leaning, comedic leaning work? I mean, this is potentially if I were to say something that might equally irk some of the same people, it might it might value kind of middle aged white comedians over Mm. over Dev Patel. That said, there are plenty of extremely funny middle aged white comedians in this one. I was going to say between this and the best exotic Marigold Hotel franchise. Like, Dev Patel has worked with every over 50-year-old <laughs> British acting legend. Like, he really... It's like, if this was Pokemon, he would be well on his way to catching, catching them, them all. all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure that in terms of 
mentors, it was exciting to him to work with some of these people. Although maybe he's moving a little bit out of his mentor phase. Well, no. Does one ever truly move out of the mentor I was going to say, from his interviews, he it, even, you know, out. his contemporary interviews, they're all just like, oh, I have such like imposter syndrome and I never feel like I know what I'm doing and I'm always intimidated. And he had said that early on he was like, feeling overwhelmed and peter capaldi pulled him aside and like gave him a pep talk and was really sweet so it sounds like dev is still while he might not like no one else might think he needs mentors it sounds like he internally is still searching for them as you said as you pointed out he's our age and i am nowhere near the end of my mentor phase i may never be you know so i'm sure this is very exciting for him yeah i'm sure it was let's catch up a little bit so i I, one thing i did spend my indoor kid time doing was sort of mm-hmm. catching up on the the jump between lion which we covered last week and then personal history of david copperfield mm-hmm. this week um he does dev does two movies in that time both of which come out in 2018 i had not seen either of them and i had classified both as dev patel gun movies which oh. is sort of accurate but i have learned sort not of different entirely. so the two movies that come out after lion he does one called hotel mumbai and another called the wedding guest Hotel Mumbai is basically a very both realistic and sort of heightened reenactment of these horrific real-life terrorist attacks that happened in India in 2008. And he plays somebody that works at the hotel that was one of the main sites of these terrorist attacks. And it's sort of like a movie like United 93 when it's sort of like you know, we're we're just zooming in on this horrific experience and all the... Basically, it was... I would say it was in the top five most upsetting films I've ever seen in my life. Like it was it on a technical level. I think it was very well done. I don't even know if I could say like, I have a strong like ethical objection to it, but I could never like in good conscience recommend someone watch it because it's just a deeply upsetting watch. So that's a gun movie in like one direction of that. Mm -hmm. The wedding guest, meanwhile, is, is just like heightened Hollywood fun gun movie, which it's a fascinating thing to compare it to. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, he plays this like, um, not hitman, but like a mercenary criminal guy who's hired to kidnap a bride like on her wedding night. And it so- almost becomes like a Bonnie and Clyde story where it turns out she's a little more in on it than we're originally thinking. Mm. I actually had a lot of fun with this. It felt like it was like a 90s thriller, but like more filtered through like a 2018 lens and it's dead it felt like very much like it could have been an audition to play james bond like he was a very stoic like i'm good at shooting and i'm a little bit like you know sexy romantic tortured but very internal i actually would like i don't think it was an amazing movie but i would if you're curious for more dev patel content like i would think the wedding guest is kind of like a fun i think it's on netflix right now cool fun little watch um so he does those in between i do although it is a fun gun movie yeah, I, I think admit. you might be into The Wedding Guest, or at least is for something that's, like, free. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you were on Netflix or whatever, I guess, not technically, whatever. Feels free. Perfectly fun watch. It something I've already paid of, for, you could say. Yeah, exactly. It was a little bit, it was probably, like, the most stoic thing I'd seen Dev do, like, stoic action hero mode. Mm-hmm. And he does that very well. I was impressed. But it is actually Lion, the movie we covered last week, that is sort of the key to getting Dev cast in David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. because uh, Yanucci had said that he had just knew Dev as, like, you know, the silly guy from Skins and the star of Slumdog, and he sort of knew him as, like, fun, gangly, comedic guy, as we've talked about many times. That was sort of his brand for a while. And then the sort of 
like stillness and seriousness of Lion. Mm-hmm. Like Inuchi said he was just watching that movie and he was like, that's my David Copperfield. And he, was, he didn't want anybody else for the role. So he just like offers it to Dev and sort of realizes he's the perfect person to blend the comedy he's looking for with the seriousness, yeah. which I just think is 100% accurate. Like this is such a phenomenal piece of casting to me. Yeah, yeah it really is. I mean, I think we've already talked a number of times about what makes Dev such a good protagonist. And it's that blend you talk about as well as, I don't know, he just has something about the expressiveness of his face and the sort of goofy, humble kindness of his demeanor, as well as, frankly, some of the sort of meta-textual things we know about his career and the the ways in which we've talked about it. it he basically seems to have the career of an underdog. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very uphill. good observation. So it's like we could see someone who had lots of charm but didn't feel like they were sort of fighting the odds as much in this and it wouldn't feel yeah. as much like I mean it's 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 interesting that like this is sort of the third coming of age lifelong story we've watched with Dev. I was going to say that I was thinking of them as the third thing where we've seen a little kid play Dev before we see Dev. Yes. Play <laughs> a third a third very charming little kid. I think this is the most desirable bedroom I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah, but I want all the kids who have played young Dev to just like come together and do a sitcom about what it was like. Yeah. To... But yeah, it's like uh, it's another like Bildungsroman. You know, he's mm-hmm. just growing up, and like you just want to root for him to triumph over over all the odds that are put before him. Ned, I think that's like a brilliant take. Like that part where Peggerty is like. What is, I don't know. You had success. You had failure. You had success. You had failure. Yeah, so it stands. To, it stands to reason. Yeah, yeah. You, you're the better mimic. You'll know more than I do. Yeah, I think she says like you had nothing, and then you had something, and then you had everything, and now you have nothing. So it stands to reason you'll have something again. And that is kind of Dev's career, right? Like he yeah. starts out right out of the gate, Slumdog Millionaire, has that real fallow period with Best Exotic Marigold Hotel and Last Airbender and Newsroom and. Who knows what? And then, like, has his upswing with Lion again. And you're, I think that's so true that he is, there is something in his real life that feels a little bit underdoggy in a way that is very compelling. Makes him easy to root for. Yes. I mean, is there anyone easier? I have just, like, th- this whole series is just, I really, like, I liked Dev going into this, but I just have a whole other level of, like, respect for him as an actor and for how hard he's had to work in his career. And mm-hmm. I really hope Green Knight is a huge hit. And- I feel like this is a really exciting way for us to structure this series where I too am really like, I'm looking forward to Green Knight with so much nervous anticipation. I'm just praying for it to be great. Yeah. We'll see. Um, we shall see. So this, one other thing we should talk about is that this is obviously a movie that is colorblind in its casting, which I think you and I are probably very familiar with because it, that's like a very common theatrical device. Like I feel like- yeah. With it really for the past, I mean, probably like two or three decades, that's pretty much always how you're going to see Shakespeare played. Unless it's something like Othello where the race is, you know, specific to the story, you're pretty much always going to see a colorblind cast. Even something like, you know, Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing, right? Like Denzel Washington is in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of pulling from that tradition. Yeah. Or as I also mentally think of it as the tradition of Brandy Cinderella. Do you remember that? <laughs> Absolutely. Whitney Houston Brandy yeah. Cinderella. That I think was like formative for just what I think all casting should be. Like mm-hmm. I really think that that movie. I'm like yes, unless it is a specific, super realistic story or a story about race, 
if it is anything that's operating on a semi-fantasy level, mm-hmm. cast it like this. Like, there's truly no reason not to. Just say that Victor Garber and Whoopi Goldberg had an Asian son, and yes. like, no one's gonna bat an eye at it. Yes, it's pr- and that's exactly what David Copperfield does. Mm-hmm. You have Dev in a leading role, but you have actors of color throughout as well. And I think that's great because, as I read in that Iannucci quote, like, it is a very British story. And I was realizing that this is actually the first movie we've covered where Dev is using a British accent. That's right. Because in Slumdog, he has an Indian accent. In Last Airbender, even though he's part of a fictional Fire Nation, for some reason he's doing an American accent in Mm -hmm. that. Another of the many strange choices that movie makes. In Lion, he's Australian. Um, So this is like our first proper British Dev playing probably like, you know, arguably one of the most famous British characters. And it's really nice to see him like own get to get to own that sort of like character i think yes he he gets to own a one of the i don't know arguably top something most famous british protagonist characters and it also yeah that specific that yanucci quote about like he's he's championing a diverse britain he's saying Mm -hmm. these are all british people this movie is going to explore class iniquity but it is going to say we're leaving race to the side. Let us leave the donkeys to one side for the moment. <laughs> um, it's going to leave race to one side and say everyone is equally entitled to play any of these characters regardless of race. And I know that Dev in a lot of interviews and stuff was talking about this just being such a good way in for people who maybe would be less likely to connect to Dickens, right? Absolutely. Like he said he was – God, there was some interview where somebody asked – he was like, oh, I hadn't read the book. And like, oh, have you read it now? And he's like, nope, too many pages. <laughs> it's so <laughs> funny. Like the way he said it. Oh, it was so funny. Um, but he was too saying like pages. in school, like he growing up, he always felt very like disconnected from this kind of material. And mm-hmm. some of that is just the that it, you know, can feel dry in general. But I think also part of it can just feel, you know, it can feel foreign to just be a world of old 19th century white people. Yeah. And that casting it this way and playing it this way, like one thing... I like about this movie is that it feels like certainly there's some of that heightened period pieceness to it, but the comedy feels very modern. The way they're speaking doesn't have any of that stuffy quality to it. No, I just can I just say I love how many people in this do silly voices. It's yeah. something that I love to see in movies because actually movies. Well, at least maybe it's just because I have a social circle that loves to do silly voices and goofy impressions, but. It's something that is sort of weirdly rare in movies to see people, to see characters like do an impression of something else or do a goofy voice or I just love, I mean, I love all of the stuff with the, what's the the dog, Jip, like Dora, Dora and, okay, Dora probably made me laugh out loud more than anybody else. She is She's very funny. This is the, she's like the kind of like sweetly ditzy. Yeah girl that David Copperfield is in love with for most of the movie and the way they play her like naivete and she just like lives in a bubble and is very childlike yeah god and they have this dialogue through her dog where she likes to do impressions where the dog is uh, they're like they're comical misunderstandings so their first dialogue like she's doing a dog voice and he does like an apple tree voice and then later on in a truly hysterical almost proposal scene she like makes him talk (laughs) through the dog it's just so funny but i also god there was this moment where um uh, Agnes, Agnes Whitfield, mm-hmm. who is sort of the other romantic interest who he ends up with in the end. 
the eventual um, we- real, like, she's the mature girl that we kind of know he's supposed to be with. Yeah. And ultimately does end up with. Who plays her? I'm like, let me look on IMDb. Agnes is played by Rosalind Eliza. Well, she's great as well. She does this thing where she's like, it's when he's looking across a garden party at Dora and he's like, mm-hmm. we should be following you. You should think we're following you to London. Oh no, Agnes is following me. And she like kind of like grabs him. It's just so cute and it does feel contemporary, is... but it's so earnest and, and I just I just thought that one was so cute. Yes, I agree that Agnes does not maybe get the most scenes, but I like, well, this is also the type of character I just generally connect with in mm-hmm. fiction, but like... I th- I she like is such a standout to me. Rosalind is. I think I butchered her last name, but sure. I think she's so wonderful. And yeah, that scene, that like certain very relatable type of like I like she's in love with David, but doesn't want to make that clear. Like sort of wants to indicate that that's open, but if he does not seem open to it, then also wants to be the cool girl that's like I'm also going to help you date who you really want to date because I don't want to. I still want to be friends with you anyway. Like there's a lot under the surface of that dynamic. And, like, the warmth she has, and a lot of this is in the script, too, but the warmth and, like, compassion and empathy she has that I think David at his best has, too. Yeah. Particularly about something like Mr. Dick's sort of, uh, this is Hugh Laurie's character who thinks that he, sort of his, like, mental illness manifests as him thinking that when Charles I was executed, he, Mr. Dick, like, inherited all of his thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so he essentially just has all of these thoughts running around his brain that even though he is like a very smart educated person these like intrusive thoughts prevent him from functioning mm-hmm. and david immediately takes this super empathetic approach to like taking care of him and then when agnes comes into the situation there's a fear that she'll just be like ooh this guy's weird i don't want to deal with him but she immediately takes the same empathetic approach like he's like is my head attached to my body and she's like oh let me check yep looks good to me and like she's fully on board she's fully not judgmental and that kind of sells you right at the beginning like oh she and david are equal in how they treat the world like that's why they would be a good couple and i think just so there's so much that like comes through in that and i really love that Mm -hmm. like subplot of the movie Uh, that's that's in the script and she gets the most out of it as an actor and i think also it's just almost every character has those little things that as i say i think this is a movie that is i expect to reward my rewatches because i think there are so many little nuances that if you look closely can tell you a coherent story about the more of a character, even though with the size of the ensemble cast and the size of the story in the relatively limited two-hour runtime, you don't get to delve into everyone. Mm-hmm. Like we don't really, we don't really get that much exposition or exploration of Tilda Swinton's Mrs. Trotwood, but she mm-hmm. clearly like mines every little moment. They all do, and I, I think it's yeah. clear that the director has a has a head for those things. I think often of this will be a couple a couple little references in a row, but there's a YouTube account called Every Frame of Painting, which is one of my all time favorite YouTube accounts ever. It's a guy named Tony, uh, Tony Zhu, who's an editor and who basically makes these wonderful little video essays analyzing cinematography and editing. And he has one about like how to shoot physical comedy or how to shoot a funny movie, and. He talks a lot about, I think it's actually focused specifically on Edgar Wright, but it changed the way I look at how so many comedies are essentially like, do a standard shot, reverse shot, medium, wide, and just let the funny improv comedians be funny. But there's 
almost nothing funny in the actual filmmaking and the way that shots mm-hmm. or edits are composed. That that's all very sort of rote to leave room for people to improvise. Potentially the Judd Apatow style, you might say. Sure, sure. Um, and you know, I have fond feelings towards a lot of Judd Apatow movies, but yeah, they are essentially just setting up standard frames most of the time for funny actors to kind of like cut loose and this is definitely a movie where you're getting a in every scene things that are creative filmmaking and filmmaking that is set up to accentuate and in some cases even provide moments of comedy and uh and it also as i was sort of saying at the at the beginning of this little winding tangent it gives you a lot of insight it gives you a sense of depth of these characters even when they have relatively limited screen time. Mm-hmm. Well, it is interesting because this is like a 900-page novel. It's Dickens' longest novel. I think it certainly would be fair to say that it has, in addition to comedic elements, like dramatic elements and, you know, the social commentary that Dickens always does. And, like, there's certainly a lot. I'm Well, I mean, again, I've said I, hadn't read, I haven't read this book, but my understanding is that there's a lot in that novel. And it, this is like a very fleet two-hour movie that really does hone in on the comedy first and foremost, and the other stuff's there, but it's a little mm. bit more backgrounded. Yeah. And I think that that's why some people were, well, whatever. I always like hate to be like, I'm criticizing how other people are receiving a movie. I'm always nervous about that. I think it is. this is the type of movie that it's easy to be like, because it's comedic, there's not a lot there. But I actually do think there's a lot of depth that is coming from the performances and like the sort of quiet tragedy but also the quiet hope of like Hugh Laurie's character and his struggle with mental health Mm -hmm. and the moment that like really kind of destroys me and is also such a fascinating adaptation choice is that at the end of the movie this the setup is that um David and Dora are engaged and David has now sat down and is sort of like formally writing all of his life into the the book that will eventually become Personal History of David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. And he kind of like writes her into a scene and she says, oh, I wasn't actually there when that happened. And he was like, yeah, but I want you to be in the story. So I'll just put you there anyway. And then she says, but like, I don't quite fit. And at first it kind of feels like a joke. Like, it's like, oh, I don't fit. Like, just write me out of that scene. And then she has this realization, like, I don't fit into this at all. And it sort of becomes... That's like them breaking up, but it, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Yes, it totally works. I mean, it's it's funny because it it starts off almost as a goof of like, oop, we've lost the thread because it's a moment mm-hmm. where like, just like one person says something, one person, it's sort of a kind of like a Brad, Janet, Dr. Scott kind of moment in the offices that are all sort of like berating Uriah Heep. And then she just pops in and like says something or slaps something. And it's like, wait a minute, she's not even in this scene. Oh, whoops. But then it becomes this very intuitive dignified moment for her which is Mm -hmm. why i think also that character doesn't feel like it's punching down because it would be totally possible to have like oh he loved the stupid girl but then in the end he ended up with the smart girl yeah and you can have those things where it's really kind of like brutally at the expense of that girl but the way they treat her in the fullness of time i mean she clearly is like constantly misunderstanding things but they they make her so good and so mature and intuitive in that in many of her scenes, most particularly that one. And it's such an interesting moment of her, you know, actually taking agency in the story. So so you don't come away feeling like this was a one-note bimbo character or anything like yeah. that. I completely agree. And I think that's exactly the sort of thing that I think it's easy to miss or that it's e- even easier to appreciate on a second viewing. And also, this is where it really ties into the Greta Gerwig Little Women like meta-adaptation. So in the novel itself, Dora and David get married 
Their relationship seems, again, this is from my plot summary on Wikipedia, Mm -hmm. but they get married. Their relationship, like. Too many pages. They're sort of like, yeah, too many pages. Yeah, me and Deb on the same page and too many of them. Um, David and Dora, their relationship is like, as sort of in the movie, like, clearly they're not a great fit, even if there seems to be genuine love there. And then in the novel, she, I think, dies in childbirth or shortly or has a miscarriage and then dies. And that's Mm. way more leaning into that Victorian, you know, trope of the woman dying tragically. And then he ends up marrying Agnes. So what I love what this adaptation does is it, it grants her that agency that in sort of like the world of the film where David is writing the novel, she requests to be written out and we're to assume that then her death in the novel is his way of handling that. Similar Mm. to in the Greta Gerwig Little Women where it feels like her kind of rom-com subplot is resolved within her fictional novel she's writing within the movie, but maybe the real life quote unquote Joe like doesn't end up Mm -hmm. with Professor Bear. Like there's a really, I think it's like an interesting, it's like in conversation with its source material, material rather than just straight adapting its source material. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting because in that regard, it gets to be faithful to those things. Something you said about um, the sort of treatment of Mr. Dick and his like, you know, just using the phrase like mental illness, like Dickens Mm -hmm. wasn't using the word mental illness. And yet it does feel I think this movie kind of makes the case that he was grappling with those things. Mm -hmm. And it feels like this movie offers you significant and intentional glimpses around the edge at as many weighty issues as would have been in play. I mean, Mr. Dick's mental illness is that the look at sort of class and poverty, the sort mm-hmm. of these lingering shots of people living on the streets. We are sort of story lens into that is Mr. Micawber and the Micawbers who are sort of, you know, the almost clowny. I mean, there's, there's real mm-hmm. pathos there. And in the moment where this is Peter Capaldi's character, if you need a, visual if you need an old british face to attach to what we're talking about right now exactly one who looks somewhat similar but not exactly the same as hugh laurie in this movie kind Um, of confusingly similar actually i would say yes that's true you have to have some relationship with these people maybe but but there's real pathos in the moments when he is like booted out of the school and you just see him like teetering on the edge of deep shame but it is sort of a clownish version of this i mean his debtors are like pulling things out of the house through the windows Uh, that part where they pull they're like pulling a rug like a rug (laughs) runner out of his house but the way we first see this is that they're sitting at a dinner table and all of a sudden their baby in like its high chair just starts scooting across (laughs) the room because the baby's on the rug that's being pulled so they're trying to prevent the rug from being pulled and trying to prevent their child from like accidentally being pulled i laughed so hard at that yeah so much good physical comedy around that and when he tricks his like this pack of like rabbling creditors to stepping away and he goes in and then he reaches out and then he pulls the kid David Copperfield into the window. Lots of that. So it's a clowny and it ends happily. It's a clowny version of that. And yet you see around the edge intentionally this sense of like there are people living on the streets in poverty and we can see the system that's not going to grant them up. And, you know, for lots of Lots of uh, basically like the old white dudes of literature who get taught in AP English class who did not have, I think, Dickens's progressive social mm-hmm. beliefs. So we see that. We see the mental illness with Mr. Dick. I felt like there was one moment. Do you think I'm going out on a limb to say there was a, a sort of an interesting homoerotic angle with the character of... I think it's 100% there. Of uh, what's his name? Steerforth? Yes. This is uh, David ends up basically the whole story. If you don't know, David is like 
born into a semi-respectable family, but the, but his dad has died, his mom gets remarried, so he kind of is then sent on to various relatives and various places and schools and working in a factory for a while. And this is when he's kind of on the upswing and he gets to go to a little bit more of like a prestigious kind of prep school and sort of he's hanging out with the prestigious prep school boys and sort of trying to pretend he was always one of them and sort of the coolest boy is the one he befriends. And I definitely think there is a lot of, yeah. <laughs> this is also bringing me back to my English AP days. There was just like a period of my life where I was like, I feel like every novel we're reading just has so much homoerotic <laughs> subtext in it. And I can't tell if I'm bringing that to it or if that is just a more common theme in literature than we think it is. And maybe a little bit of both, but I do think it is a more common theme in, in classic literature than sometimes is acknowledged. Yes. Um, definitely Tumblr is like ready to see it. And there are, yeah. there are times in which I think that you're just going to have a little column A, a little column B. You're going to have times in literature in which the author genuinely might not have understood what they were doing and was just putting something else in the world. Or like there are times in which I think authors must have intentionally coded in mm -hmm. something as, you know, queer. There are times in which they might have unconsciously coded it in. And I guess column C is there are times in which it just wasn't that at all. And people wish to see it that way. I'm just thinking of, I read a, an in terrific, I'm going out on a limb, but Hey, we just, we just do those things. It was a terrific essay on Polygon by Molly Ostertag called the, uh, Queer readings of The Lord of the Rings are not accidents. And it was sort of an extremely smart literary look at uh, the deep love between Frodo and Sam. But mm -hmm. but I think what this movie sort of seems to me to posit, and again, neither of us have read the too many pages long personal <laughs> history of David Copperfield, but I think it's sort of saying all these things were there under the surface. We are not going to make explicit what Dickens chose to leave as implicit, but we are going to let the implicit be there in these sort of pregnant pauses and wide shots and uh, you can make of it what you will. So good. Yes. I'm, I'm not going out of Steerforth is like a fascinating character. Totally. The, the movie is interestingly structured in that it is very much an ensemble movie. Like Dev's there a lot. It's This is definitely probably the biggest leading role we've seen from him in mm -hmm. terms of He's had other movies where he's like the title character, but as we mentioned, frequently sharing a substantial amount of screen time with the younger version of himself. That's this right. is, you know, he is really, there is a younger version, but it's it's much more in that mode of the opening like 10, 15 minutes. And then he is David Copperfield. He gets the lion's share, not to be too yeah. on the nose yeah. of the screen time. So the rest of the characters will kind of come in and out and steer forth. It takes a little bit for him to enter the story, but then he does become very prominent and i think it something i really connect to in this movie is the idea of david copperfield like essentially having to like code switch as he enters all of these different social classes mm. and so when he's he's go, you know he's born into like relative some level of aristocracy it seems like but then winds up spending summers with these like much lower class like fishing people and so he's trying to fit into that environment and then gets shoved very much into the fully upper class society you know but then has also had this experience working at, at a bottle factory and when he goes to the bottle factory they're like you're too upper class for us we're making fun of you for that but then when he goes to the prep school he has to hide the fact that he worked at a bottle factory because that would put him on the outs you know with that society and mm -hmm. i feel like steerforth who is fully just an upper class character like his mom is sort of the most upper class aristocratic character in the movie and then the way he kind of like code switch and in interacts with everyone is interesting because when he goes to the more he goes back to visit the sort of working class fisher 
fisherman people. Mm-hmm. And he kind of fits in there in a different way than David Copperfield did. And it's a little tense at first and then he gets involved. But then he weirdly like fits in really well. But yeah. then he also kind of like fucks them over because he runs away with essentially their daughter and like then abandons her having, you know, had their premarital sex. And so then she's kind of ruined in society's eyes. And, and he has a character that has a lot of like mel- like a ton of melancholy. Yeah. And... But it's not fully unpacked, and the the homoerotic moments are not fully unpacked. But like, I feel like there's really a lot that's existing with that character, and he's maybe I'm not super familiar with that actor from other things. I think I might have seen him in Dunkirk. Oh, he's, sure, he's French. I saw Dunkirk. I think he's the one in in Dunkirk who's like secretly French. Spoilers, mm. spoilers for Dunkirk. <laughs> there's a secret French person, and it's not Harry Styles. No, I do feel like with every character, you could really every character in personal history of David Copperfield, and you were kind of saying this before, but you could really go through and be like, it, it feels like each actor has created a fully three-dimensional mm-hmm. backstory and understanding of their character. And even if the movie's only exploring like a fifth of that, sort of the full work that the actor has done makes the world feel so rich and has more depth in its emotions than I think. Yeah. Or that it would be easy to miss, maybe. Yeah, and, and depth in its themes. I think I hadn't even thought about the phrase code switching, but it is 100% something this movie is intentionally exploring. And yet it just, if you want to interpret on a level of just being sort of a picaresque novel, you could just sort of watch it waft from one thing to the next. And mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, it's it's sort of like can go as deep or as easy as you want to take it along. But But I feel like they really packed in a lot of good work and good specific bits all the way through it. And I also think so much of that is all the compliments we're giving to the movie in that are also fully the compliments we can give to Dev's performance. Totally. Like, I don't know how you feel. This is my favorite of the Dev performances we've covered so far. To me, this is like what I think of as the ultimate blend. This is like the Avengers, like everything Dev can do (laughs) coming together in one movie. Because I feel like something like Lion, we're getting very serious Dev. Or even something like The Wedding Guest, as I mentioned before, we're getting more serious Dev. And something like... um, the best exotic miracle hotel franchise or skins we're getting like full comedy dev yeah and this is like everything he could do comedically which is incredible i think he's a hugely t- talented comedic actor but then also everything he can do dramatically and everything he can do as sort of like romantic leading man and like oh i just love this performance so much and I, like i wish just for the performance alone i wish this movie had made a bigger splash because i feel like this is like a, a version of dev that we haven't seen before even in all the stuff we've watched yeah yeah, he he juggles so many things, which is such a part of this character navigating all these worlds, and and just does it with so much pathos. And I think, yeah, he completely knocks it out of the park. I I would agree. I think it's my favorite performance because, as you say, like all the other ones lean to one side, but this has this has all of it. And he is so funny, and like yes, when he mimics people, hysterical. it's so accurate. Yes, yeah, and everything about his like physical comedy. Yes, his is incredible. His comedy chops are extremely, extremely strong and extremely on display. So I still haven't seen Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. I actually did watch the trailers the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too bad that I would not even be able to go in and watch them without. I wouldn't be able to look around all the discussion that we've already had with Yumi and with Manish and with others about like all the basic reductive Orientalism of them. It's too bad because I do like a movie about horny old people. Mm-hmm. But, um, but. So if that's sort of one of his like extremely like comedy forward performances, there is something in that he's not doing it here with the under the mask of a, a put on Indian accent, which is mm-hmm. itself a punchline to a lot of Western viewers who are like, oh, uh-huh, yes. the voice. He's, 
He's just like, a, you know, he's a British comedian with the best of them. Yeah, and that's comedy very much in like a sitcom-y mold, especially his character more than anybody else in the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel franchise. Mm-hmm. And this is comedy in like a Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, like pratfall and pulling faces, but then also so grounded in an actual character. Yeah. Like, I just think this performance is so good. Yeah. Can I just say the moment where the like the soaring strings are playing and him and Dora like both throw things at each other's faces yeah. just cracked me up. The other thing when you already talked about the scene where they're first meeting and she's acting as a dog and mm-hmm. he's acting as a tree and there's like a great interaction where he he kind of like is like oh I like to be at the tree I'm David Copperfield and she's like are you still being the tree <laughs> and then which is hilarious and then as he goes to exit they do this like extended comedic bit where she kind of just he walks off screen she'll kind of say something and be like oh sorry what was that but she had in. just kind of been speaking to herself yes. they do that like two or three times yeah really sad it's just that I mean like. You know, she is so in control of the comedic tone of this movie. And I feel like even describing it, like what we're describing sounds so sitcom-y, but it doesn't play that way. Like it plays, it's just like so funny. It just feels really of the tone. It feels really like reading a Dickens novel, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. is funny and weighty and, you know, grim and at its edges and really great. And yeah, he just, he knocks out of the park. He fits right into the world. Um, And, you know, we have to give credit to these movies like they make their own tone i mm-hmm. think about this one especially yeah it's like this is not they're not doing a period uh they're, they're not really even doing like a real place it is mm-hmm. like this blend of things where they have created the rules of the world and it just does it so impeccably with with so much like impeccable artistry and yeah he the movie is completely anchored in his in his character work and it's mm-hmm. all terrific And there were interviews where Deb said that he, when he, they did like a two week rehearsal period beforehand, which I think most actors love when they get the chance to do that. He said his first couple days, he came in very much playing it, you know, like Downton Abbey style, like proper, you know, Mm -hmm. what do you think of as like an old timey performance and that Inuchi was like, I want you to feel, and this is what also reminded me of Greta Gerwig because she's, with Greta Gerwig's Little Women, she said the way they approached it was like, the March sisters didn't think of themselves as old timey people. They were at that point, the most modern people that had ever that, lived yeah. do you know what i mean in That's the way right. we feel now like oh of course we're the most evolved society will ever be like yeah. we are the most whatever in tune with everything and we know the most and there will be one day where we are very old-fashioned and uh, you know our lives will seem ridiculous and so they very much approach david copperfield that same way where they're like you know the dialogue can feel thrown off and it can feel conversational or tossed off and conversational and lived in and the physicality can feel lived in and i think that those are the kind of touches that help with that relatability and again i think that stuff is so much more important than quote unquote like period accuracy which really is just like nine times out of ten is just making it seem like other movies we've seen you know what i mean not even making it more accurate to the period it's making it feel more accurate to what we think the period's supposed to be like Mm -hmm. it's like the a knight's tale thing right where it's like yeah we're capturing the vibe of what medieval life would have felt like to the people within it Mm -hmm. and if you want to use a queen song to do that that's no more inaccurate than using you know like string and brass instruments that didn't used to that weren't around in medieval times we're like oh that music sounds old-timey yeah yeah and you know people like when people talk about traditional shakespeare productions i mean shakespeare wrote plays about ancient greece and they wore and they wore clothes and spoke like the people at the time yeah (laughs) 
Yeah. The other thing this really reminded me of is um, Joe Wright, who did the director that did um, the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice mm-hmm. and Atonement. He did this version of Anna Karenina. Yeah, I thought of that. a lot of it is like on a stage. Like it literally is on a stage. And this movie kind of opens similarly on a stage. And then we'll use theatrical devices. Like there's a scene where they're in the upturned upside down boat that, his, that Pegarty lives in. And then hand comes in and like all of a sudden the boat is a set and a hand is ripping through what seems like a house size set but then it's becomes david's stepfather like taking a drawing he's done and crumpling it up and like it's such a cool theatrical transition yeah i just love all those touches and yeah it's a it's a beautiful movie i just i I can't wait to watch it again i cannot i'm so glad you liked it um okay can i i want to bring up we kind of mentioned ben wishaw before i would say that Ben Wishaw as the sort of villainous Uriah Heep, that's maybe the area of the movie I have the most question marks around Mm -hmm. where I'm like, if there's an element that doesn't fully work for me, I think it's that. So I was curious if you had any thoughts on on that character or that performance or anything. Well, I do think to get this part of it out of the way, a model that hasn't aged so well, and this isn't all it is, but there are a number of old British novels, including, you know, this is not so long ago, but I, I recently for the first time read a um, an Agatha Christie novel that I just loved overall. But but something that is not uh, that I'm not so keen on today is the like the the, the class pretender, like the lower class mm-hmm. guy who like who's like one of his main crimes is like trying to odiously advance himself. It's not exactly the same thing we get here because we see David kind of move between classes in a way that exposes mm-hmm. the fakery of them. And ultimately, Uriah Heep's crime is to be, you know, an embezzler and a and a deceiver. Um, but it is a little, there is a little bit of that character who at his root is like somebody who like is clambering above his station and like isn't classy enough. Mm-hmm. The way the creators talked about it, I found more interesting than it read on screen hmm. to me because they had kind of specifically been like, yeah, we actually felt like Uriah really is this parallel for David where they're mm-hmm. both sort of trying to hop between classes and that made them interesting foils, which like is certainly there, but didn't feel like it was a huge, like huge through line of the movie. No, to me. I I see that. I see that. I got that. I mean, I wouldn't say that it bothered me very, very much. And I like seeing Ben Wish on something, and frankly, I like seeing him do something a little bit different. different. Being not sort a of... soft, nice, widowed, uh, no <laughs> Mary Poppins, no, not a Paddington. Guy. Although I guess you know, I guess as I mentioned, you know, the first thing I saw Ben Wish on was the James Bond films, and he is he is a bit snarky there, although ultimately, you know, a good guy. Yeah, uh, it didn't bother me that much. What 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 would you say you found a little off about it? Well, the other thing that Ianucci was saying was that he liked the idea that, like, ultimately, at at least the beginning, Uriah Heep's, like, biggest crime is just being, like, socially awkward. Yes. And he was like, oh, it's kind of interesting how cruel all the other characters are to him. Yes. And I actually think that's really interesting, too, except by the end, Uriah becomes such a one-note villain that I was like, oh, I feel like the interesting element of that, where he has a more sympathetic side, kind of goes away by the end. That is true. It does And I think feel... that was maybe what, that felt a little bit more, like, I think what the movie does so elegantly in terms of not punching down at Dora, it felt like it did a little more punching down with Uriah in terms of, like, this is a little bit of a stereotypical, nebbishy, awkward, manservant character who felt like he was being treated as a v- villain without the little bit of extra nuance that they're able to give to Dora. Yeah, I guess to me it read like 
less ambitious than that, but it was essentially someone whom, you know, I was inclined to be sympathetic to as being sort of the lower class punching bag of everybody at the at the boys' school, who kind of reveals his predatory nature, especially mm-hmm. in that first meeting where he's he's been inviting them to tea and you're like, you're expecting it to be like, oh, David goes to tea with the awkward guy, which actually makes me, there is a scene in, there's a sequence of Great Expectations that I remember being so fond of where Pip goes to have tea with Wemmick, who's like an accountant, and it's just like getting to see the life of this like impossibly stodgy little gray man um, and very humanizing. So I thought it was going to be that, and instead it's kind of like he reveals that he is a little bit of like a an extortionist. Mm-hmm. I agree that it makes the character a little more one note, because you see he's just sort of an ambitious climber. It kind of feels like, oh, the fact that they were all rude to him doesn't matter because it was kind of ended up being deserved in the end. Oh, yeah, I see. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the reason they weren't mean, they weren't mean to him because he was villainous. They were mean to him for an unjustified reason. But then by the end, them being mean to him was justified. And it was like, oh, that interesting, like, character flaw mm-hmm, that, that kind you were of pinpointing in David Copperfield, which I think it's nice. Like, he does, he can maybe come off as a little bit more of like a one note or a classic hero and i kind mm. of liked giving him that flaw but then the flaw was ultimately like not really revealed to be a flaw yeah i see what you mean that does kind of do two things that are somewhat at odds with each other maybe the biggest thing of all is and i rarely say this but i genuinely wish this movie was longer like mm. i could have taken a whole half hour more of this movie like we keep saying it's only two hours and i think Yanuchi said he really wanted to keep it at two hours like he wanted it to really go quick but especially at the end when you're dealing with Steerforth and going back to, you know, him running away with that girl and then getting caught in a store. There's a lot that happens really quickly, which is sort of the point of like cramming everything in. But I was like, I would have happily lived in this world, lived in that complexity, given Peter Capaldi like 12 more bits. Like I would have happily just taken more of this movie. Yeah, I was in no rush. I was in no rush to have this movie end. So I agree. Could have been a little bit longer. Maybe if it was a little bit longer, we'd be saying the opposite. Yeah, who knows? Maybe too. I really like, I actually do like that they were ambitious enough to make this just as one movie. You know, I think mm-hmm. there is an impulse now to be like, oh, it's if it's long source material, let's make it a miniseries. Yeah. And I do kind of like the art of adapting a single story into a, a different type of a single story. Sure. I think it's an interesting challenge. Like, I'm happy for there to be a bunch of Dickens TV adaptations too, but I think there's a value to sort of putting it all in one sitting. Yeah. And consuming it that way. Yeah. it's um, It feels like you're kind of, kind of fits with the little evening at the theater you have there you get the sense that he Mm -hmm. has a whole vast story and i'm going to give you what i can in a little window it's going to be like a little ship in a bottle just in terms of other things that that really well balance the sort of comedy and pathos i love when they go back to the boathouse the house that is a literal boat oh yeah and when we saw it when he was a kid it seemed like this huge colorful like almost like playground that was like so idealized and then he goes back as an adult and again i think this is such a relatable idea but it's like it seems small and shabby and he keeps hitting his head on the roof and the rooms that he thought were so big you're like oh this is actually very small um i often think about that yeah i um i grew up in a i spent my first nine years in a loft in chicago that half of it was my parents um photography studio and did have very tall ceilings. And we had like a climbing wall in our house and swing sets in our house. And I think was a genuinely very cool place. But then sometimes I'm like, but I was also seeing that through the eyes of a nine-year-old. Like maybe if I were to see that today, like those ceilings wouldn't seem as tall as I remember mm-hmm. them. Do you know what I mean? But I yeah. have, I can't go back there. It's been like renovated. So I only have that child. I feel like it's just a very relatable feeling of, of 
realizing that something you thought was one way as a child, like you go back as an adult and you just see it in an entirely different light. Yes. Oh, I, I had, I had, yeah, that literally the exact same thing going up to see during the pandemic. Actually, last year I went up to a house that I lived in the North Shore of Chicago in like fourth and fifth grade. I was like, oh, it's. Wow, it's it's just much tinier yeah. than I thought. I remember it being huge. And I love that. I love I mean this is, you know, I'm a big fan of like 19th century literature. And we talked about this in our little women episode, but it is kind of crazy to go back and read these things that were written like a couple hundred years ago and be like, "Oh, they were, you know, in some ways dealing with the same things we deal the with now." Things. And it's kind of remarkable how relatable that can still be. Yeah, and I think that's one of the one of the sort of visions and goals of this movie is like, ah, oh, it's just the same, just the same thing mm-hmm. in a different time. Well, are there other thing, other performances that you feel like we haven't hit on or other scenes from this that you wanted to shout out? Do we get, do we give enough time to Tilda Swinton? Everybody's great. Tilda Swinton. Benedict Wong, our little oh, uh, I love Benedict Doctor Strange Wong. reunion. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love Benedict Wong. Maybe someday we'll get to talk about Sunshine, which is the first Benedict Wong movie. Mm. He's just great. He's great. Mm-hmm. I know he has a whole um, British comedy television career that I We'll just have to see because everything I see him in, I think he's great. Um, yeah, who else is in this? I mean, yeah, I love Gwendolyn Christie of Game of Thrones. Of course, we have Brienne. Quick little appearance. Um, yeah, all, all the people that I don't even know. I mean, Peggy and as I said, um, what's her name? Morfid Clark, maybe. I'm gonna get these names so wrong, but the woman who plays who plays Dora, who also plays his mom. Yeah, did you notice? I that? did. I immediately was like, oh, is this a thing where like the idea is you just you just love your mom? It's a fascinating, again, talk about things that are dropped in there and not really just like left for you to chew on, yeah. right? Like we're going to cast the mom to play. And that also feels very theatrical, right? Yes. Like, oh, here's a small role at the beginning. We'll double cast it with something exactly. later. Very... But certainly there's some subtext to being like sure the woman he falls in love with is yeah. uh, <laughs> his mom in some way. I love the very, the very Dickensian workhouse figures, the guy who owns the bottle shop mm-hmm. and the guy who repeats after him. I don't know if we've said that we loved uh, uh, Hugh Laurie, but I thought he was great. He's my stand- I Besides Dev, of course, I think Hugh Laurie's my standout in this. I think it's just like the pathos he brings mm. to Mr. Dick. Like, it's like astounding. Like, there's so much that I f- about that character that I just find so moving. And there's this whole scene where um, David is like, okay, the way to help process your sort of spiraling thoughts, let's take all the little scraps of paper. You Well, first of all, he's just so empathetic being like, oh, I relate to what you're struggling with because i also have a lot of words that come to my head and i write them down Mm -hmm. and you get the sense that it's not a one-to-one comparison like david copperfield is more the impulse of a writer not the compulsion necessarily of somebody who's like deeply struggling with thoughts he can't control Mm -hmm. but he is still able to make that connection like very empathetic connection and then he's like oh the way to handle this let's take all these scraps of paper and we'll tie them onto a kite and we'll fly the kite and that will like free your mind up and clear it up and i love i don't know i love things where it's like you can just use a metaphor to reframe something someone's struggling with. And that's, of course, not the same thing as, you know, seeking medical help, which you should also do, and being on medication, which you can now access when we're not access when we're not living in the 1800s. But just the, I think just it's powerful sometimes to just reframe things in a metaphorical way and, like, take ownership of them. And the, like, impulse that David Copperfield has to do that yeah. is so lovely. And then... And then Mr. Dick's carrying the kite around for the rest of the movie and trying to fly it whenever he can. Yes, and... which is a great little just runner for him to always have it. Mm-hmm. And he goes and holds onto it when uh, Tilda yeah. Swinton, like, takes his hand when they've been, like, run yeah. out of their home. And then he, like, goes over and grabs the kite. It's really sweet. He's got lots of little small moments. I, I, I haven't seen him play this, like, sort of daft older British man. Mm-hmm. But he does it He does it very well and uh, and very humanely. And I love 
I love this little moment where he's just like, what is he? He's looking at some scrap of paper. He's about to ID the, uh, he's about to figure out the fraud and say, swans, Mr. Mm-hmm. Mr. Wolf, Mr. Wickfield. He's just looking at it and he like gets lost in thought and his long pause and until it like snaps in front of his face mm-hmm. and just keeps going. They said that, Hugh Laurie said that in rehearsals, he and Tilda sort of worked out a whole like, essentially like body language language, like nonverbal communication, because mm-hmm. there are sort of old people that have been, or older people that have been living together for a long time yeah. and sort of are able to snap each other out of their little thought spirals they get into. And so they had worked out this whole, you know, unique set of interactions they yes, had. They clearly have a whole system of communication and a shared, shared rhythm, which is really nice to see. I also love the scene where he goes into at first try to buy and then eventually just steal the like concertina mm-hmm. accordion yeah. that uh, Peter Capaldi's character has. It's been taken by the debtors or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that like little like, I mean, this is a very like episodic movie. It's like, here's one little adventure scene. Here's one little adventure scene. But the three of them, like Dev, Hugh Laurie and Peter Capaldi, just like on a romp. I'm like, yeah. yes, please. Again, another half hour yeah. of this. I'll take as much as you want to give It looks me. so fun and looks so, you know, gives off the energy of having been fun to film. Kind of like, mm-hmm. kind of in stark opposition to Last Airbender, which two episodes ago we discussed and said <laughs> was, looked like, looked like it was, had been so deeply unfun to film so and was kind. therefore equally unfun to watch this is the opposite of that dev has also said that there's a scene where where peter capaldi i just keep at some point i'm like maybe it's easier to just say their actor names and their character names but he comes into the the fancier prep school and is like passing himself off as a teacher and is essentially just riffing on pretending he knows latin grammar and dev patel said that was like the scene where they laughed the most because it was just like peter capaldi was up there like vamping and going and going and going and yeah dev that sounded like another moment where dev was just like wide-eyed impressed by <laughs> an older british thespian skill in some capacity just being a big old goof yeah i guess that's it i just think this movie is great i wish i had more like <laughs> thoughts and conflicts to work through but i feel like i just like love this movie i think it's a mix of very very funny whimsy but also really moving humanism like that's just right up my alley speaking of peter capaldi i think that this is a tone that doctor who often hits mm. like i think of it as a very british tone of like 90 percent of this a jo- is a joke and lighthearted, and 10 percent of it is like the most devastating thing you've ever seen before mm. and i find that combination to be incredibly emotionally affecting maybe more so than things that are the opposite where it's like 90 percent drama 10 percent comedy mm. like i find that the Drama can often hit me harder if it's filtered through the lens of comedy rather than vice versa. Yeah, yeah totally. I guess that's... Great costumes. Great costumes. And Dev wears them so well. He has like plaid pants he wears. Mm. Like a vest. He looks great in every single outfit they put him on. Put put on him. And I think I hinted at this last week, but this is long hair, no beard, which I think is also a great look for him. Totally. Yeah, he looks As great. going through Dev's uh, various glow-ups yeah, he's yeah, experienced. Yeah. So I would just say, if you haven't seen this movie, which I think a lot of people didn't, clearly we both really enjoyed it. Get on it. Get on it. It is on HBO Max. If you have that service, you can also find yourself just laughing at Tilda Swinton yelling at donkeys because, again, maybe my favorite moment of the whole film. So we have seen now Dev Tackle One, iconic figure from British literature, and next week we're going to watch him do it again. Only after Ned and I go to a physical movie theater Mm. to see The Green Knight, the movie that we have been building up this whole series to. I'm super excited to see what that's like. Film Twitter seems to be very positive on it so far. What a relief. Um, So so hopefully that speaks well. It is, we're back to Beardy Dev. 
potentially dev at all ages. I've tried to st- I've tried to not watch too many trailers. I guess there's not really spoilers for like a centuries old Arthurian legend, but <laughs> I've been trying to not see too much about what it's. I've I've not watched. I watched actually. I watched a trailer once in theaters, and since then I've avoided it. And I I can't really remember what I saw in that. It was so overwhelming. So many crazy images yeah. of like giants <laughs> and a talking fox, maybe. So. Yeah, uh, oh, I love a fox. Yeah, well. Devin a fox. This is like a real. Um, did you ever watch Fleabag? Yeah, mm, he went that way. There's that whole like fox runner. Yeah, that's my favorite. With Andrew Scott, that's like my favorite scene in in all of Fleabag when he's like, "Where are they? I know they're around here." <laughs> let's um sidebar. Let's do an Andrew Scott miniseries at some point, which might have to be mostly TV. But sure, talk about another British legend. Um, I guess that's where we'll leave it for now. I'm excited to go back to a theater to see. The Green Knight. So excited. To see what the next phase of Dev's career holds. I'm sad to leave it behind. Maybe before then I'll try to squeeze in one or two more Dev features I haven't seen to give you full recommendations for what of Dev's career I think you should seek out. But until then, Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita and Ned Baker. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy and our logo was designed by Nick Monserski. You can follow us on Twitter at RollCalling. Email us at RollCalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. You can also rate and review us on your Apple Podcast app. We would much appreciate it. Next week, we'll be back to wrap up our Dev Patel miniseries with a week of release review of The Green Knight. Until then. Kite time.